time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. My guest for this week is the voice of the Patriots on radio, Bob Sosi. If you have suggestions for people or guests you'd like to have on the show, email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook that way as well. You can find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb, on Instagram at lking.cardinalsfan85. And you can find information about the network by looking up Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page and the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page. And now, my interview with the voice of the Patriots, Bob Sosi, here on the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. A friend of mine, haven't caught up for a bit, but well worth the wait. Voice of the Pats, former voice of Albuquerque, Norfolk... Maybe, if I missed anything, we'll get around to all that and then some. <laughs> <laughs> His resume is so long, it would take the whole show. But he is the voice of the Pats in what, just finished up, what, seven years already? That's right, that? there's seven seasons with the Patriots, for sure. Hard to believe, seven years. I didn't even know it was seven years until you mentioned it, because I'm like, wow, how time flies. But speaking with Bob Sosi. And Bob, for you, were there any opportunities in high school for broadcast, or when did you know that was something you wanted to do? Well, opportunities were very limited to actually do broadcasting per se, but I did a lot of announcing. And I knew I wanted to be a broadcaster and started practicing my announcing Luther much younger than high school. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I grew up in the city of Auburn, New York, right in the middle of New York State. If anyone has ever heard of or been to the Finger Lakes, Burn sits on one of those Finger Lakes, Owasco Lake, halfway between Syracuse and Rochester, and a long way from New York City. You tell somebody you're from New York, and immediately they say, well, where's the accent? But uh, where, I'm, where I'm from, it's more like a Midwestern way of speaking than uh, like folks do down in the city. So I grew up in Auburn, New York, where we had a great little league baseball complex that included a press box and speakers at the stadium and lights, which meant we got to play double headers. It also meant that there was a public address announcer. So when I was playing little league baseball, I was fascinated the idea of announcing players' names. <coughs> I expressed an interest to the people that ran the league, the commissioner and the assistant commissioner. And they knew that, you know, this was the kid who used to pretend he was doing play-by-play of backyard ball games. Uh, It was a small community, so it was kind of a place where everybody knew what everybody else was doing, so to speak. And so when I would play Little League Baseball, if I was playing the first game, well, then I would go up in the press box during the second game with my uniform on, and I would sit next to the official scorekeeper and PA announcer, and they would – periodically let me announce batters' names, vice versa. If I was playing the 7.30 game, well, I would go up for the first game, and I would do that like every night. And over the course of time, I got to announce more and more batters' names. That really, you know, that, that spark was there. But that's where, you know, the interest and passion really took hold, and I've pursued that goal ever since. 
But when I was in high school and even college, the opportunities were very limited because it was a long, long time ago prior to the Internet. Mm -hmm. And I went to school at the University of Dayton, where we didn't necessarily have a great uh, situation for aspiring broadcasters to develop their craft on campus. I got to do one basketball game and I got to do one football game for the student station when I started broadcasting. But I got really involved behind the scenes working in the athletic department. Now, much has changed. The program's a lot better than it used to be. But I was involved a lot behind the scenes, and I did internships in the athletic department at Dayton, as well as in the Cincinnati Reds publicity department. And that's where I really fell in love with broadcasting, because my job as the publicity assistant was to help the broadcasters and writers do their jobs. And I got to watch the best of all time, like Marty Brenneman and Vince Scully and all the visiting announcers from the National League and the networks come in and prepare for their broadcasts. And I was able to sneak into their booths at times and listen to them and watch them work. And then I was able to move down the hallway at Riverfront Stadium to one of the empty baseball booths where uh, the football booths would be because it was one of those old multi-purpose stadiums. Mm-hmm. So you had the baseball broadcast booths behind home plate, but the football broadcast booths, which were really at midfield for the Bengals, were down the first baseline. So I would go into one of those empty booths with the tape recorder and just practice and practice, and then got into the business after I got out of college. So what did you learn from being observant, sneaking into other people's broadcast booths? But hey, that's a good thing if you can get it. I've actually sat in a few booths, which is actually pretty interesting. And that's how you and I met, by the way. Exactly. Sitting in your booth for three innings while Chuck was doing an interview. And Chuck was the voice of the sounds at that time. And you could actually get upstairs and actually, you know, meet the other broadcasters at Herschel Gear Stadium. And I believe my math is right. It was Albuquerque was in town. I think it was either a Saturday or a Sunday when I met and <clears throat> listened to your coverage. And we just started talking. And not about yeah. broadcasting, per se. But what did you feel like you learned from being allowed to <clears throat> help the teams, the visiting broadcast teams, and with your job at the time with the Reds, what did you learn, and what are you still using from that to this day as the broadcaster sure. for the Pats? Yeah, I think you learn a lot by watching people. Like in any situation where you're an understudy of sorts, observing how people carry themselves for better or worse. I got to watch people that I had a lot of respect and admiration for. And no one was classier, much like his on-air persona, for example, than Vin Scully. Marty Brennan was very kind to me. And, you know, and, and you also got a chance to see a few others. And there weren't many, but you got a chance to see a few others that didn't necessarily carry themselves so well, in my opinion, who were appreciative of the help around them. And, you know, at times seemed to me to come off uh, with an arrogance and a lack of humility. And, you know, it, it was often, I thought, reflected in their work. Whereas I always thought that the best in the business, not only you know, were people that were, were so polite and respectful of everyone and recognized the importance of everyone, whether it was the, the gentleman who operated the elevator or the attendant, who checked your press credential to make sure you belonged in the press box, seated at the door every night, or the women who worked in the, the men who worked in the cafeteria, the press dining room. 
So you got a chance to observe that and, and essentially, you know, learn about how to handle yourself in, in situations. And it kind of reinforced a lot of the things that I had been taught while growing up. And then beyond that, from the broadcasting standpoint, you know, you, you just get a chance to watch someone at work and, and, and different things stay with you, whether it's the scorecard they kept or you know, how they kept track of certain things, what they were talking about during those dead periods when the ball wasn't in play. You got a chance as well to see how they prepared, who took notes, um, you know, how do they take notes? You know, literally, literally the physical preparation that they invested before every broadcast. And then beyond that, because you were there, because you had an interest, in my case, there were broadcasters who were very open and accessible in answering my questions. And often I heard from them, uh, for example, first before I asked you know, about what they do. They would say, hey, you know, what do you do? Where are you from? Uh, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, I've been to Auburn, New York before. They used to have a minor league ballpark there, you know, et cetera. So you strike up a conversation and then you get a chance to ask them some questions. And, you know, people, I think, that in our business who genuinely uh, get a sense that you genuinely have an interest in becoming a better broadcaster and learning from them, I think they're very willing to impart what they know. I think we've all benefited from mentors and people who've been where we want to be in this business who've helped us ultimately you know, to try to get there. And the follow-up question, since you mentioned the minor league ballpark where you live, have you gotten a chance to go back home? And is that park still there? That park was replaced by a new park. The old <coughs> park, the new park still have the same name, Falcon Park. In Auburn, New York, it was for a long period of time probably the worst ballpark in minor league baseball. Oh, no. And we would go out before high school games and we'd have to pick rocks and sometimes like broken glass, without exaggeration, out of the infield dirt. It wasn't much different when the affiliates in my youth of the Philadelphia Phillies early, but especially later on, the Houston Astros, and then they later became a Blue Jays and Nationals affiliate. Now the Auburn Double Days play mm -hmm. there. You know, they, they have played there. Hopefully they can continue to play there. The ballpark is much better now, but uh, nonetheless, in the New York Penn League, it's a short season A league, and you've got young kids that are just out of college for the most part, or Latin America taking in the draft, or, or signed and getting their first taste of professional baseball. And it was just a great opportunity to grow up in a town like that, and, and I spent a lot of time around that ballpark. I would go down the right field line, and hang out with my buddy, who was a, a huge baseball fan, a lot of working and playing in professional baseball, as a matter of fact, as well. Uh, he, uh, he and I used to go down and hang out by the bullpen. We'd lean over the chain link fence, and we would chat with visiting bullpen catchers and pitchers in, in the pen. And, and, and sometimes they would sign autographs. Sometimes we even uh, worked out to get some trades. I remember there was a pitcher, and I was actually in the home bullpen, uh, named Anthony Kelly for the Auburn Astros at the time. And I had this uh, Chicago White Sox jersey. I don't know why. Whatever compelled me to buy those awful White Sox jerseys. And that <laughs> oh, period, where they, they had the, the thick blue stripe horizontally across the chest and the sleeves you know, with two red thick stripes uh, on top and below. Who was and, the genius who had that idea? Yeah, this was <laughs> and, and just the word socks across the chest, S-O-X. And uh, this was the, the Carlton Fisk 
uh, years after they did away with the, the, the uniforms that used to have uh, the collars and hung outside the, the pants, the jerseys that hung down and were untucked. Uh, so the next uh, uh, version of the, the White Sox uniforms were, were these uh, 80s uh, unis that I was describing. And, and uh, I had a jersey uh, because I liked a player named Julio Cruz. I was a second baseman and Julio Cruz was a, a real hot dog. He was a real show off as a baseball player, but he's a really good defensive second baseman. And so I got a Julio Cruz jersey and I was wearing it to one of those games. And this pitcher from the Chicago area named Anthony Kelly was enormous. I, he, there's no way he could fit into the jersey that I was wearing. He liked it and he wanted to trade with me. So he got an Astros jersey and gave me the Astros jersey. He's one of the, the multi-striped uh, uh, orange and red and yellow with a big blue star on the chest uh, jerseys that they wore, of course, in the 80s as well with Nolan Ryan, for example, uh, taking him out with Joe Necro as well. And uh, players like uh, Jose Cruz, no relation out there for the Astros and that, that kind of attire. So I made a trade with him and, and – uh, you know, it was a great experience, though, as a kid, to just be around baseball players. I loved, loved the game, obviously. And, uh, you know, it was a very uh, – it was a great place to grow up in. It was a great time in my life. So how did football come into play? I know you did one basketball and one college football game at the Dayton Student Station, but when did you get the chance to start really getting repetitions so you could, you know, hone your skills – keep working on your crafts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, everybody I think who gets into sports broadcasting has an interest in not only broadcasting during one season, but as many seasons as they can, at least for the most part. Early mm -hmm. on. You know, we all want as much work as we can get. And I was typical of most other sports fans, I suppose. I liked all the major sports. Whatever was in season as a kid in our neighborhood, we were playing it. Mm -hmm. Whatever was in season... As a fan, I was following it. And as a broadcaster, I wanted to broadcast whatever sport was in season as well. So when I was doing baseball in the minor leagues, and I started out in Rochester, New York, my first job in, in, in professional baseball outside of the internship that I did with the Reds, as well as a short stay as public address announcer for my hometown team in Auburn while I was in college. The first job I had out of college in professional baseball was with the Rochester Red Wings. And I was so lucky to have that position because I was basically a glorified intern, but Josh Lewin was the full-time play-by-play announcer and his partner for home games took a job with the competing station. And so they couldn't have him on the air for a few innings a night when the Red Wings were at home. And I happened to have a little bit of experience from those days when I was with the Reds. I made a lot of cassettes those times I talked about earlier, walking into the empty broadcast booth, I brought a tape recorder with me. And so I practiced play-by-play, -play, and I gave it to the general manager in Rochester when I heard there was an opening, and I was lucky enough that he hired me for the home games to be on the radio too. But in the offseason, Josh, like myself, he was ambitious and wanted to call more sports. He was very talented. He still is. He's had a great career. As a and the current voice of the UCLA Rooms. Exactly, and has been the voice of several Major League Baseball teams and has worked on Fox yep. uh, as well, Major League Baseball broadcasts. Well, Josh and I decided, let's put together a small college radio package. And we got a couple of sponsors, and we bought airtime on a station, and we started broadcasting Division Three 
football and basketball, University of Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology. Hobart, oh, wow. All these obscure schools to many, but you know, very good schools nonetheless in upstate New York. Now, but, I, I got to know with those broadcasts, uh-huh. what <laughs> what were those broadcasting days like? Like, what were the broadcast meetings with you and Josh as the only two broadcasters, unless you guys were able to find a way to finagle somebody to do sidelines? Yeah, no, our, uh, this, we're talking about a very, very basic broadcast. We were our own engineers. Our broadcast meetings were sharing a ride on the way to the, <laughs> to the <laughs> stadium. Exactly. You know, we, we, but we had a great time. It was a great experience. But it gave me an opportunity to start calling some other sports. But I didn't call football again. Luther. I did some high school games, too, whenever I could. Uh, but I didn't call football again until I became the voice of the Delmarva Shorebirds. In 1997, and in 1996, we got hired by the Shorebirds, a Class A team in the South Atlantic League in uh, Salisbury, Maryland. I think they're still around. I was hired to do the Shorebirds games in my first year. I was a full-time employee of the team. Right. And in the interim, Josh Lewin, there's that name again, he, he had gone to Baltimore. He got a job with WBAL Radio in Baltimore as a sports talk show host. And was developing his skills as a Major League Baseball announcer. Well, he gets hired in the middle of the season of the basketball season for uh, WGN to call Cubs games on TV. Well, he'd also been doing Navy basketball. So he gets hired for the Cubs in the middle of this Navy basketball season. Now the Naval Academy needs someone to help out and, and take his place for a handful of games. Josh gives them my name. I'm over on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay on the Eastern shore of Maryland and Salisbury. And they give me basically an audition game. And I go call a Navy Coast Guard basketball game. Coast Guard Academy, Division Three school. And they liked it enough to ask me to do the rest of the schedule. And I did that. And the following year, the athletic director said to me, you know, we, we, we'd like to have our own voice of Navy athletics. Would you be interested in something like that? And I said, absolutely. However, they were committed to the football radio play-by-play announcer, a gentleman right. by the name of Steve Buckcast. And so I was hired at that point to do basketball play-by-play, and lacrosse play-by-play, and host a, a number of shows, and also be a part of the football broadcasts as a pregame at halftime host. Mm-hmm. Well, again, middle of the season, opportunity calls for someone else. And for me, Steve gets hired by the Washington Wizards to do the television broadcasts, which he would go on to do for 20-plus years. And that means Navy needs somebody in a pinch to start calling football play-by-play. So in November of 1997, Navy's at Notre Dame. My first broadcast in college football, uh, Division I college football, was Navy at Notre Dame. And the game came down to the final play when a uh, Navy receiver caught a deflected pass but got shoved out of bounds at the one-and-a-half-yard line, which narrowly prevented Navy from beating Notre Dame for the first time since 1963. And then did Navy football for 16 years. And I remember listening to one of those games, especially when you played, what was it, Georgia Tech in Ireland, which was probably a fun experience. Played Notre Dame in Ireland. Yeah, Notre Dame in Ireland. That was like a 6.30 in the morning kickoff. Central time. I had a lot of tremendous experiences calling Navy games. But you were at Delmarva, but let's back up a little bit. When did the Albuquerque thing come into play? Because I know you've done... But you got to fast forward now. Well... Because I know you, I know you were in Delmarva. So when did 
that contract in or how long did you stick with the baseball side and then full-time Navy football and TV basketball lacrosse and whatever sports Navy need you to do for TV. Sure. You know, and again, Luther, you know, for, for me, it's, it's always been, you know, the cliche about a door closing or a door opening, you know, sometimes doors closed for me and I, and I thought it was the end of my career or I was, you know, on the verge of despair and then suddenly a better door opened. And, and that was the case really with my experience at Navy, for example, I've been in Peoria, Illinois for a few, for three years before I got the job in Delmarva. And I was on the verge of going to graduate school. I was on the verge of getting out of minor league baseball and going to graduate school at Syracuse university. And my thinking was I'll, I'll get out of sports play by play and become a, a news producer. Uh, you know, I had an interest at the time. I was at the time that I would love to work on a show like 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. But right before it was time to make that commitment, I'd been accepted and had interviews. I got a call, uh, an opportunity to go to Delmarva. And I thought, you know what, let me put off grad school for at least another year. This is a new opportunity. It's a brand new team. And let's see where that leads. And I knew that there might be a possibility of trying to, you know, being closer to Washington, Baltimore, at least, I felt like there was a better opportunity maybe to get my foot in the door in a bigger market. And so I went to Salisbury and I did the, the Shorebirds games for three seasons. And meanwhile, I got hired by Navy. And the group that I was working for in baseball, the Maryland baseball company, owned several teams, one in Frederick, Maryland, one in Bowie, Maryland at the time, as well as Delmarva. So after three seasons of calling Shorebirds games, I really wanted to commit to Navy. I loved what I was doing at the Naval Academy, but I was living in Annapolis and Salisbury, which are about 90 miles apart. Well, Mm -hmm. the team in Frederick suddenly had an opening. So then I got hired to do the Keys games by the same ownership group because that was much closer for me going to Frederick from my home in Annapolis than going to Salisbury and crossing the Chesapeake Bay all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I did the keys and I continued to call Navy games. And while I was calling the Frederick keys after a couple of seasons of work, the Maryland baseball group sold the teams to Comcast Spectacor owned by Comcast, uh, the major cable company out of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Well, Comcast decided after uh, that first season of ownership that, you know, airtime is really expensive in a marketplace like Baltimore and Washington. And these minor league baseball teams, they're not making any money on their radio broadcasts. And so if we can't find a, a station to carry our games at an affordable price, we're just going to drop radio altogether. And that's what they did. And I had to go out and try to find some other play-by-play opportunities for baseball. And I did a lot of different things. I pinch hit for a couple of different teams for various reasons. And now after a year of doing that, in 2002, uh, I was close to being hired in Norfolk, Virginia. And I'll give you a little story here because I think it's really important for young people. Everybody's young in the business and, and what, again, goes back to my learning experience about how to handle yourself in situations. Mm-hmm. I was a finalist for the Norfolk Tides, and they had an old general manager by the name of Dave Rosenfield who really prided himself on broadcasters. So in addition to Marty Brenneman, Dave Rosenfield had also hired other broadcasters like Pete Van Weeren and Bob Rathbun and some others who've had really good careers, whether in Major League Baseball and or other sports like the NBA in the case of Bob Rathbun and college mm-hmm. basketball. And so Dave, Dave 
really strongly considered me, but I didn't get the job. I was one of the three finalists. And when he called me to tell me how much he liked my work, and I knew he was, he's a really hard, he was a really harsh critic of Broadway. And I knew if he was considering me strongly, that that spoke well of my work. And so when he told me the job, I was very, very disappointed. However, I told him, you know, I really appreciated the consideration. I congratulated the person who got it. And then I hung up the phone. And the first thing I did was pull out a, a, a stationary card and wrote a nice note to Dave Rosenfield saying, thank you for consideration. You know, I hope perhaps in the future for an opportunity versus again, consider me again. And the way I handled that was in stark contrast to the other person who didn't get the job. He was not happy about it and voiced his displeasure. Well, a year later, in 2003, the owner of the Tides, Ken Young, buys a franchise in Calgary, Alberta, and moves it to Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Is that the ever-popular formerly known as the Pacific Coast League, where the, almost everybody had to make that Canadian road trip known as the Calgary Cannons? Exactly, the Calgary Cannons. You know, because Albuquerque, for years, of course, had the Albuquerque Dukes, but their stadium fell in disrepair, and yeah. they lost the team. Well, mm-hmm. Ken Young buys a, an, a, this franchise in Calgary, which was really struggling. Because if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think before you came along when Chuck was doing the games, there was this nice little road trip that the Sounds would go through Calgary and then Vancouver and then Edmonton. You got it. You got and it. And I'm like, I forgot, I forgot what the team name of Vancouver was, but I remember Vancouver the Calgary Cannons and the Edmonton Trappers. I remember yeah, those Vancouver two. Vancouver Canadians. Oh, yeah, that, that, exactly. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice little road trip trying to go through customs and all that good jazz. And oh, then, yeah. And then when you got out of Canada, if the Sounds are still on that road trip, they would go to Portland. Exactly, yeah. The dearly departed Portland team. Yeah, well, in my case, you know, I was doing – I. I yeah, because, you know, Dave Rosenfield liked me. <coughs> he was the general manager of the Tides. Ken Young was the owner of the Tides. Mm-hmm. And Ken Young buys this team in Calgary and moves it to Albuquerque, where they get to build a beautiful new stadium. Okay. They need a radio announcer. And Ken Young says to Dave Rosenfield, Rosie, you like radio broadcasting so much. I trust your opinion when it comes to a radio broadcaster. I want you to do it. And, of course, Rosenfield liked me the year before for the Tides. And he also liked... I handled the situation when I didn't get the job. Sure. And so I was his choice for the isotopes. And I went out to Albuquerque and I did three summers of baseball for the isotopes, the AAA affiliate of the Florida Marlins. Mm-hmm. And they were also a parent club for the now departed New Orleans Zephyrs who now have moved to Wichita. I don't know if they're still a Marlins affiliate or not. Yeah, I can't keep track of all the movement these Me days. Me neither. The minor league baseball was able to survive not only the situation we're in today with the pandemic, but also what was being proposed across the country by Major League Baseball owners. The last thing I heard on Twitter was there were like 40 to 42 teams that could be like not be owned by Major League clubs anymore. Yeah. And I think the, the Diamond Jacks of Jackson, well, formerly the Diamond Jacks, now known as the Generals, who's the Seattle Mariners Club, I think from what I've heard, is one of those teams that could be on the chopping block. Could be. 
Yeah, there's a number of them, including the team in my hometown of Auburn. So, really? Yes, sir. Oh my! So, I mean, like, you know more minor league baseball than I like. I, I ever will. I mean, I enjoy minor league baseball when I get a chance to listen to it. But how did it get to this point with, you know, teams in the minor leagues could be cut out by Major League Baseball not owning them anymore? Well, it's financial, the bottom line. And, yep. and you know, the, the, the shame of it is, is the minor league teams over the course of the last 20 to 30 years have, and their cities and states have built beautiful facilities because for years they were told if you want to keep your team, you got to upgrade your facilities. Yep. And they did that. And now Major League Baseball, I think, is looking to spare expenses and cut back player development, and that's going to affect the minor league teams. And I think it's outrageous. But It's I, sad. It is. It's very sad. I mean, it's sad. Well, you know, again, we're in a situation today, this unprecedented time where – you know, so much is bound to change on the other side of this. Definitely. But I think beforehand, uh, when there was first the news of the 42 teams, as you mentioned, being eliminated, there was quite a backlash. And it was also a political backlash. And a lot of representatives from these modern league communities across the country mm-hmm. certainly uh, tried to use baseball's antitrust exemption uh, to uh, leverage the Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred and the owners, et cetera, to reconsider. So we'll see what happens down the road. But I, I'm, I'm certainly you – know, I hope. hopes that, you know, that, that a lot of those communities – I hope there's a solution. Keep their teams. I hope there's a solution for that because it would be a shame to see a lot of minor league teams – and a lot of fans that support those teams, that may not be 10,000 a night, but those – diehard fans that still believe in community and love coming out to a baseball game on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday on a weekend or a holiday can at least be still able to do that. Right. Because that's what baseball is. It's community for a lot of people. And it's a chance to get away from reality for a while. Yeah, no question about it. It's very important economically to those communities as well. I mean, there are so many benefits. I just know what it was like for me. And I think for the for the Major League Baseball, too, movement. I think it's very short-sighted. And I mentioned yeah, my, my experience as a kid. For a lot of people who <coughs> live in this country, they don't have access to Major League Baseball. No, they and don't. Popularity of baseball is waning. I loved baseball. I have an awful time trying to watch a, a full inning, let alone a full game on TV at night. <laughs> You talk about generations of kids like where I live, and I know it's 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 becoming more popular in other parts of the country, like the Mid South. A sport like lacrosse is, is is really dominating the spring schedule for a lot of kids. Sure. So if you're Major League Baseball now, and you take away this one connection that a lot of young people have to the game professionally, professional baseball, where they can go to the ballpark and watch a game at an affordable price, and, and like for example, the stadium in Nashville's unbelievable. A lot of yeah, first horizon park. Yeah. I'm watching the game, but at least there's exposure to it. It's yeah. beautiful. So much better than Herschel here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, from what I heard from a lot of broadcasters who I've met. An example of what I was talking about earlier with the, with the upgrades the teams and cities have made. Yep. But you know, when I, when I think about like my experience, well, that's what turned me into a huge baseball fan in Great Park. And so you've already, you're already losing 
a big portion of your audience because of the nature of play and the nature of the games. Yep. You're losing a lot of young people and have been for years because of the time of the most important games. People mm-hmm. kids aren't up to watch postseason baseball. Exactly. And now, you know, you're, 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 you're threatening to pull the rug out from under, you know, not only young kids today, but, you know, generations of future baseball fans. Yeah, they're, you know, grandparents can – take the grandkids and the next generation of grandkids to go run the bases and just seeing the look on the kid's face when they're, you know, catching, you know, playing catch, running the bases, getting an ice cream, getting a chance to meet their favorite, you know, the heroes of tomorrow at the minor league level. Absolutely. Just that. Yep. Absolutely. And because I met you when you were doing the Albuquerque games and then – you did three seasons of that. So then what happened after that? After Albuquerque and you were still working with Navy or did? Yeah, yeah well, you know, it, it was logistically, uh, while the experience was great in Albuquerque, it was pretty difficult every year to drive across the country in March and then have to drive back or, or go back and forth in September over Labor Day weekend when the isotopes were winding down. And Navy football was just starting. So after three seasons in Albuquerque, lo and behold, the tides job opened up in Norfolk. And, and Dave Rosenfield asked me if I wanted to come back closer to uh, Annapolis, come back to the East Coast. And I did that. I took a job at the tides uh, at that point in time. And I did the tides from 2006 uh, full time uh, for the next couple of years and then met my wife and moved to Boston. And that's a long story in and of itself as well. Oh, we got we got enough time. If you, if you, no, not if too you, much. I don't know if I have, if I have enough time. But well, good point. Because I know you probably have 35 other things to do on your schedule besides sitting here all day. You probably can hear my two kids in the background. I've got a second and a fourth grader right now. They're, they're enjoying <laughs> oh. their, their liberty, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my. How's that, how's that transition been from, you know, them being – in a school where you're not sure if when school's going to open back up, plus trying to, you know, keep them entertained at home, plus making sure they get their work in. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's certainly a test of my patience, and I'm a pretty impatient person when it comes to that. <laughs> so, uh, it's been uh, probably harder on me, uh, and because of that, harder on them. I've probably made their lives miserable at times <laughs> trying to deal with it. But it's all relative. We're we're very fortunate so far to to be healthy and in the situation that we're in as a broadcaster for an NFL team. You know, my season hasn't been interrupted yet. There's a very strong possibility that it will be. Uh, But uh, I'm financially in a lot better situation than than most, certainly. My wife is a physician, uh, though she is is in a very precarious spot, Last week, she spent five straight days working 12-hour shifts treating inpatients, COVID patients at Massachusetts General Hospital. So, mm. you know, but we're, 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 we're lucky so far. You know, we're, we're healthy and the kids, are, you know, they're good kids and they're, they're very creative kids. So even when they're not doing their schoolwork and it's a struggle to get them to do their schoolwork, they're still generally <laughs> deeply interested in, in things that I think are, you know, helping. Maybe not necessarily do math, but they're certainly helping their creative uh, abilities and imaginations for sure. So speaking of the past gig, you were doing the Norfolk Tides, and then how did the journey lead you to now? 
Well, as I said, I, I met my wife. It was 2007 when we decided to, to really get serious and we got engaged and mm -hmm. she was finishing a fellowship in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. Oh, wow. She said, what do you think about, she was from Boston. She said, what do you think about, you know, me putting out some feelers in the Boston area? And because we, we wanted to get married, we wanted to have children, we wanted to have family, sure. my grandparents to help raise those kids. Mm -hmm. And I had always wanted to live in Boston or New York. And I said, let's do it. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll base myself there and, and knock on doors. And you know, maybe that's what I need to do to get, get a breakthrough to the next level, to the major leagues. And so in 2008, after I called the Tide season, I joined my wife in, in Boston and went back and forth between Boston and Annapolis uh, from 2008 through the 2012 season. So that's four football seasons. Mm -hmm. And I would fly out of Logan Airport in Boston down to BWI in Baltimore to meet the midshipmen. I would call the home games and then take a train back through the night from Baltimore to uh, Boston. Uh, if the team was on the road, I would take the first flight out on a Friday morning and, and meet the team at the airport and hop on their charter take the plane ride back to uh, BWI, hop off the charter, and then catch another flight or train back to Boston. And that was my weekly routine during the fall for, for the next five years. But I was knocking on doors in the Boston area as well. And uh, during uh, the fall of 2009, I learned about a CBS radio venture. There had been an all-sports station on AM in Boston, WEI, which had been ultra-successful. But... I think CBS sensed an opportunity. They had an FM signal. There was, I think, in this marketplace, uh, a certain level of toxicity mm -hmm. associated with WI style. It's just a, it, it became a, you know, a lot less about general sports talk and, and, and you know, other agendas. That I think, you know, they saw an opportunity. If, you know, we we had the uh, we we can we can make an inroad here, and mm -hmm. we have an FM signal to do it with, and so. The folks at WFAN in New York, uh, the first all-sports station in the country, one of the most profitable radio stations in the country at the time, consulted mm -hmm. as a CBS property. And they started 98.5 The Sports Hub in Boston. And they were, they, they were, they were already rights holders for the Bruins and the Patriots because they had a rock station that the Patriots games were being broadcast on, WBCN, a legendary yep. rock station in Boston. Legendary. And... Um, when the Sports Hub launched, you know, they did it with two great properties because the Bruins suddenly became really good again. And the, the rival across town was ignoring hockey altogether. So mm -hmm. they alienated a large part of our population here. So, you know, as much as people love the Predators, it, it, you know, the, the audience for uh, the Bruins is probably tenfold. And you know, Yeah, and the good news is with the Bruins, you're, they already had – Dave Gosher, who's now the TV voice of the Las Vegas Golden Knights. That's right. You're right. You're, you're a big broadcasting expert. So, yeah. So Dave <laughs> Not was, really. <laughs> Dave, and Dave did a great job, by the way. Oh, he's, yeah. He's awesome. I, I think he's working, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's working with former national predator Shane Knighty on the you TV side. I'm mad this right. You, there you go, Luther. You're absolutely right about that. So, anyway, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I heard about the sports on launching, and, and I knocked on doors and I went in for a meeting with the program director and the assistant program director in the fall of 2009, shortly after they launched. And we talked for about a half hour and they wanted to know what I wanted to do. And all I wanted was a part-time opportunity 
anything to get on the air. I would take, I would have taken an off air job just to get my foot in the door. Sure. And I didn't hear from them for three years, not a word. Mm. But when I left the office that day, I gave them a CD, which included some samples of my football play by play. Mm. And it just so happened that the assistant program director listened to the CD and he liked it. And in 2012, Gil Santos, who called Patriots games for forever. Love that guy. Legendary voice of the Patriots here. In Love the that guy. Hall of Fame. Classic voice, always will be the voice of the Patriots. Exactly. Well, he retired. And I got an email from the Sports Hub because that CD I had given them several years earlier, their program director listened to, the assistant program director listened to, and he liked it. And they wanted to hear more of my work. And that's how I wound up being hired by the Patriot by, by 985 the Sports Club to call the Patriots games. I sent another CD, the program director liked it, the market manager from CBS liked it. They brought me in for an interview. I did well in the interview, and I was lucky enough to be hired. So when you got the patch gig, of course we always talking about taking over and trying to fill the shoes of the legend, but also trying to be yourself, as Vin Scully would say in his book, Pull Up a Chair, The Vin Scully Story, when he talked about Red Barber basically telling Vin, don't water your own wine. That's be right. yourself in the broadcast booth. How tough was that to keep that advice when you know that you are replacing the legendary voice of the past, Gil Santos, and you know they, they had the last few years had brought in Zoe to do sidelines. And then when Gino Capaletti retired from the Patriots broadcasts, they moved Zoe to work with Gil Santos for the last, what, three or four years of his broadcast career. And basically, Zoe was already ensconced in the broadcast. So what was it like, you know, getting to know your analyst? And, of course, Russell working with one of the best producers in the business and Howie Sylvester who has become a real good friend of mine, who emailed me, who, well, I shouldn't say that, but I just did. And I actually enjoy the opens and how you put them together. But we'll get more into that before we close up shop. But what was it like trying to get to know Zoe, who was already ensconced in the broadcast? And what did you feel like the biggest things you were trying to figure out to make sure that you had a good rapport with him when you got hired? You know, Luther, you have to be yourself, as Scully said. I mean, there's no way you can do it. Whether you're following somebody who's legendary, or you're, you're the first team announcer for a team, for example, or Del Marva. Right. And when it comes to a partner, you know, you got to keep going. You have to find a way to connect to that person. Mm -hmm. That line, you know, Scott, our personalities are so different. I'm, I'm <laughs> Bud Abbott to his Lou Costello, although he would, he would turn that around because he's the tall, classic <laughs> classic comedy big hockey guy. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you know he's life of the party, life of the Patriots. He's been in this marketplace for a long, long time. He's a very popular personality, almost like a cult uh, like following uh, for a certain demographic in this marketplace. And uh, you know he's a great guy. He's a great guy to work with. And as different as we are, I think you know, we were able to connect in part because of that. We balanced out one another in the broadcast uh, was, was a, a nice blend of the straight guy who called the play my play, took care of the nuts and bolts. And the analyst who really did a great job, does a great job of 
breaking down the game, but also at the same time injects a lot of emotion and personality. Oh, yes, he does. (laughs) And so I think we complimented one another. But I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of different partners, in particular when I was doing freelance work in college basketball and you you get a new partner. You you, You have to try to find some way to connect on some level. I think it begins off the air. Now, I've mm-hmm. worked with people with whom there is no relationship whatsoever. Really? Thankfully, Scott and I, as different as we are, have a good relationship off the air. But that's where it really starts. I think, and then when you get on there, you try to figure out, okay, how do I set this person up? How do I make this person look good? And I think you have to go in, and particularly in my case, I knew that I was not the star of the broadcast. I was right. I was complete unknown. Mm-hmm. I was already an established personality and a star here in the media circles. So my job was to try to make sure that he looked good, that he was the star of the broadcast. He, you know, he, so how do I do that? Well, I, I try to make sure he's comfortable. I try to make sure that he's aware that you know, anything that he, he needs me to do better, you know, let's communicate on it. Let's talk about it between breaks. Let's talk about it the night before when we're out to dinner on the road. And, you know, we never really, it's funny, people ask how long did it take? I mean, I don't think we really went through a transition period. It was pretty quick uh, that, that period of time between our first words together on air in Philadelphia in the preseason in 2013 and, and mm-hmm. a point where I think we both felt comfortable working together. Now, we've evolved a lot. And I think the, the listeners to our broadcast would say that, whether they like us or not. But I think that it, you know, it was a, a relatively smooth transition in terms of connecting and developing a chemistry for each of us, and and, and uh, you know, becoming a broadcast team. Now, again, there are probably a million detractors out there who've heard us, but I would say that you know, in, in our case, it came relatively quickly. In, in comparison to some that I've heard about, for example, that really struggled for a long time to develop that. And then again, it goes back to the point that I made, and I repeat myself. You have to be yourself. You have to be who you are. I can't try to be somebody I'm not. Right. And, and Zoe can't. And so, you know, how do we how do we complement each other? And, and what's the best way to do that? How do we achieve that? And I think, like I said, the biggest thing for me is, okay, well, well find one common area where you do connect. Or how do you, as differently as you see the rest of the world, is there, is there one one way that you see things similarly that you can build from. And and that's what happened. So like, what were the things you were wanting to accomplish when you stepped in and how long did it take you to build a business relationship and a partnership and trust with the coaching staff, players, the rest of the broadcast team that was already in place and things like that? Like, what were your keys that allowed you to build the rapport with your broadcast crew, with with the players, the coaches, and things like that for you? I think it's how you handle yourself. I think for, you know, and every, again, everybody's different. I can't try to be the same, same as some of my contemporaries who have much different personalities. <clears throat> Otherwise, I think people will see me as a phony. <laughs> and I think if they tried to be like I, me, they, they it would be the same. They'll see through it quick. Yeah, absolutely. So you just try to be yourself again, and you, and you try to be respectful. You try to learn as much as you can. I think you, um, in my case, I'm someone who tries not to give another person a read. I, I try not, like, for example, with it's, it starts with how you carry yourself with fellow media members. 
mm-hmm. how you carry yourself with the team. It goes back to, again, lessons that I learned in watching other people try to study people, not just in the broadcasting profession, in any profession. You know, you, 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 and it's even on air, Luther, it's true. One of the keys in, 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 in this life, I think, is, is not to give anybody a reason to dislike you. <laughs> and so in my case, that was a thrill. And this was the opportunity of a lifetime. I've been working for it for, for several decades, mm-hmm. uh, two decades plus in minor league baseball and dreaming of an opportunity to be at the highest level of sports. And, and suddenly I'm, I'm calling games for the New England Patriots with Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. And there's a chance I'm going to be calling a Super Bowl in my first season. The team goes to the AFC Championship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, the, the I was just so thrilled that everything, everything was a great experience. And I think that was refreshing for a lot of the people, for example, that I was working with, the people in the media, they – they also respected my work ethic because unlike, you know, some people perhaps who are called play by play and, and, and aren't able to get to the facility every day and watch practices during training camp and, and go to the locker room and take notes on interviews. I mean, I was there and I, and I, and I still try to be there today as much as I can. And so I think people recognize, okay, this guy does his homework and he's a really, he seems like a really nice guy. And at the same time, people on the team like me because when we when we traveled or uh, you know when when we were at home, they never heard any complaints. They didn't have any problems. They had to worry about how how's this guy going to conduct himself in the in, in a press box on the road? Am I going to have to worry about you know the person who's <laughs> checking credentials in Pittsburgh or Kansas City? You know, coming back to them with a complaint saying, "Hey, your play-by-play guy's a jerk." You know, so those are the, those are the things that are really important. I think particularly in establishing a, a good reputation. And at the same time, I think it, because I did my homework, uh, that helped with my acceptance on air. I was certainly someone who, um, you know, tried to paint the picture as well as I could. And I tried to stick to the things that had gotten me the, the job. When I was hired, I talked to Gil and he gave me a, a word of advice. And it was similar to what, what, what Scully articulates. He goes, look, remember this. There are going to be a lot of people who don't like the way you do it because it's not the way I did it. But also remember, there will be a lot of people who like the way you do it because it's not the way I did it. And that stuck, that stuck with me. Again, you just have to be yourself. And, you know, for me, thankfully, it, 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 I think it helped because Zoe and I had such a different sound than Bill Santos and Gino Capaletti, our predecessors, two legendary patriots, that we were accepted a little bit, uh, you know, more easily by some than we would have otherwise had we sounded like a poor man's Gil Santos or poor imitation of Gil and Gino. <laughs> and so I think beyond that, uh, as well, Luther, you know, the, the fans, you know, they, they want to hear, they, they want to hear the score. They want to hear the down and distance. They want to hear where the ball is. They want to hear you get excited when the team does well. And I was trying to give them all those things. And when, you know, I, I and when I was criticized, I was open to constructive criticism and I've always, I always have been, I, I always strive to get better. I think if you're always a work in progress, I was listening to an interview with Ian Eagle. who's one of my favorites, one of my, you know, a good friend in this business. And even to this day, you know, he, he says, you're, you're, you're constantly working on it. You're always trying to get better. And I think mm-hmm. that's the thing you have to do as a broadcaster. And I think fans sense that they definitely recognize that. And, and, and your peers do too. And so I think if you do those things, then you will gain acceptance. How did you come up with the idea of doing the um, opens before the main, you know, play-by-play up 
open hits. I don't have to. I don't. When you say that, you mean what do you mean by opens? Like when, like when you come up with like, kind of like a recap of last week with maybe a few highlights and maybe a few press clip and a few clips from a press conference, or like, like the team and the team you're playing this week. Like maybe a quick highlight or two of what happened last week and you know what's ahead for this week. What does this mean? And then you give like the Patriots and who their opponent is when they're at home or when you're on the road. Well, first of all, that's your man, Holly Sylvester. He does the opens. Bullseye. One of the things about being, no, it's okay. <laughs> one of the things about being at this level too, for me, at least in our setup, a lot of the things I used to have to worry about, they're completely out of my hands. It's just better for the broadcast, by the way. So my job is to prepare for my role as a play-by-play announcer. And every Sunday when I go to the booth, you know, I will do a pregame spot on our pregame show. I'll do like a five to ten minute scene setter with our pregame show hosts. But my job, once I get to the stadium, is to prepare for my game broadcast. Now, a lot of other announcers around the league do a lot more and are involved a lot more than I am in that regard. I work for the radio station, not the team that's part of it. But also the station, you know, has to this point, the philosophy may change in the future. They, they've wanted to preserve their roles as much as possible of their play-by-play men. Same goes for my co- my, my my colleagues in, in the Sports Hub family of play-by-play broadcasters like uh, Judd Surratt of the Bruins, mm-hmm. Dave Mosher's job, or Sean Grandy of the Celtics. Yep. But when it comes to our, our, our broadcast, Sean is a lot more involved just because of the nature of the Celtics broadcasts in the actual preparation or the, for the pregame show and so forth. But, you know, generally, you know, we, we call play-by-play. And, and, and honestly, that's, you know, that that's the dream. I'm living the dream for mm-hmm. sure. So for you, when you do game prep, well, first of all, let's back up to the Navy thing. When you were doing all the Navy stuff and doing the Albuquerque games and Norfolk and other things like that, how did your game prep change when you were doing two or three different sports at the same time, when everything just crossed over and overlapped and compared to now? What's your game prep like? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more intense now, but I, I think it was probably uh, as intense in some respects then. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who never really had a, had another life outside of it. Um, I, I have a lot of interest, but uh, I, I love doing the work that I do. And so I would come home from the ballpark as, as football season was approaching, <laughs> especially, and I would you know, I'd get home from the ballpark at 11 o'clock or so, and I was a late. I was a night out, and I would put the baseball stuff aside, open up the the computer, pull out my football notebooks, and start preparing on the football season. And it was the same with Navy. And then when I was hired by 985 the Sports Hub to do the Patriots, at that time I was doing some games for the Pawtucket Red Sox in the AAA International League. And, you know, beyond that, and, and, and then, you know, you, you kind of just balance it out. You, do, you know, I pick my spots on, on bus rides, on plane rides, and use that time as judiciously as I can. When I got up in the morning, I tried to get exercise, but at the same time, put in a little extra work for that second sport. And then at, at a certain point in time, switch gears and go back to full-time baseball mode. And the one good thing about baseball is that you know, during the course of the baseball season, there's so many games, it's kind of an ongoing soap opera. So one game plays off the next. And you also get a lot more done at the stadium doing baseball. So I would, I would have some basic notes and prep that I kept for the various baseball teams that I 
that I called, but a lot of the work was done when he got to the stadium because you were, you were there for batting practice. You hung around the batting cage and you talked to people during that period. And then How you did the box and you fill out your lineup card, score mm-hmm. card. You know, you make a lot of notes at that point in time. Uh, with football, there is so much preparation that is done in stages from, in my case, now in the NFL, from Sunday through Saturday just to get ready for the following Sunday. Well, what are you dealing with? It? Like, how did how did you deal with the manager's chat? Like, would they, would they determine when they wanted to do it or how would, you know? You have to work around their schedule. Yeah, generally you have to work around their schedule. But it was never really a problem. And we're only talking about, what, 10, 15 minutes out of a day, if that. What is it like working with Belichick? Because I always wonder that. It's a great experience for me. I will tell you this: it is not a, um, it is not a situation where, you know, I, I I have the same kind of relationship I did, for example, with the Navy coach by any stretch. Right. Or have a relationship with him like a lot of like some other announcers in the league do. I mean, football is a different animal than, than baseball for sure. Baseball Definitely. people tell you all the time like why they failed or, you know, <laughs> why they did well. <laughs> I mean, you know. Baseball often, it, it, you feel like when you're talking to a manager, coaches, or players, at least from my experience in the minor leagues, you felt like they they should be sitting on a couch and uh, you should be sitting in a chair with a pipe. You know, these are stereotypical, <laughs> uh, you know, psychology. A therapy session? Description. You know, it, it was, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, in, you know, in, in, in my experience in football, it's, it's a different world. You, know, you play once a week and there's a lot more guarding and, there's not nearly as much accessibility. And with the Patriots, there's even less. I don't have m- much more accessibility than the other people that work in the media here locally. In some cases, even less, and in other cases, occasionally more. Um, but Bill's always been, you know, it, t- it took some time. I think you have to establish credibility. And it goes back to everything we talked about. You have to be credible. And how do you do that in the case of Bill Belichick? Well, when you go to his press conferences, first of all, you go to his press conferences. Well, you have to. That's and, mandatory. And, well, I wouldn't say mandatory. It isn't necessarily because, again, I'm not. I'm not. And my role is call play by play for the most right. part. So, but I, I go there because it does help help me with what I do. Sure. But, but when you and when you go and you ask questions, earn it, earn it, earn it his trust and, and develop your credibility in those settings by asking thoughtful questions, questions that reflect you invested a lot of work, you put your time and thought into it, you want to learn about the game, you want to learn from him, you're not. And it's a lot easier when you're the team's play announcer to do this, of course. Right. How you handle yourself? How you handle yourself from you know what is he, what's he hearing from other coaches? What's he hearing from you know, people in the organization? What's he hearing from players? You know, they they know everything. They listen to everything that's said. He's got a, an assistant who, essentially, that's what he does. And so, if you do that, then you know, and, and you do it well, then you know he's gonna he's gonna. Uh, I think at least um, have confidence that, you know what, I'm not going to betray any trust that he invests in me. And then again, he's not telling me secrets, but I think a lot of it is just he respects, he respects the job that I do. And finally, I'm going to have to interrupt because I do have to, I, I don't have much more time. So let's, you know, if, if there's anything you really want to get to, let's, let's, let's not. Yeah. One up. more thing. Like, yeah. One more, th- like what is the experience of from the first Super Bowl to the last one that you've done? Like, what is a Super Bowl experience like for the radio play-by-play guy, especially when you're being the broadcaster for the hometown team, especially when you don't get the entire network and you're the only, you know, the, they allow the flagship station and they take the rest of the network to the national broadcast. What's it like dealing with that when you get to the playoff run and then if you get to the, 
you know, the championship level of the conference and the Super Bowl, you're blessed to get there. Yeah. What What's all that like? Oh, it's it's <laughs> it's hard to describe. It's, it's a blast. It's it, I love calling preseason games, let alone postseason games. Really? So, oh, absolutely. You mean again? You're at the NFL. You don't take anything for granted in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I love everything about my job when it comes to preparing for the broadcast and, and calling games. And so when you you know the physical tasks of preparing for a game and uh, you know what you do in the booth. None of that changes, but Super Bowl week, for example, it's 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 a major event every night, and it's just the number of media availabilities and, mm-hmm. and everything that the NFL, all the pop and circumstances that people, you know, see on opening night at the Super Bowl, the media night, and and you know, during the course of the week, you know, you're kind of like you're you're, you're kind of surrounded by all of this, and you're trying to do your job to get ready for the game, mm-hmm. and so. You, you know, you, you, you try to focus on what's important, but at the same time, you try to enjoy all the other stuff. And I've been able, I've been so lucky. I've called four Super Bowls in my first seven seasons, including three championships. Mm-hmm. And you know, you certainly, you know, but once you get into the booth and you start calling a game, it's your job is the same as it is in week two or week five or week nine. You know, your job is to get try to the best you can to capture the action, describe it, tell the listener all the same nuts and bolts. And then when the time is appropriate at the end, you know, apply the, 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 the right emotion and capture, you know, the excitement of what just happened. And hopefully I've been able to do that satisfactorily, you know, to a satisfactory level uh, for people. But I think that, you know, the, the experience of it all, it, it, sometimes it's surreal and it, it, it's, I know it's an overused word, but you're in the moment and you don't realize it often until after the fact. And for me, you know, it's after the game is over and when the team wins and you're invited to the team Super Bowl party or a couple of days later, you get to ride in the team parade. And I've been fortunate enough to take my daughter to all three championship parades. My son came with us as well on one of them, the last one in 2000, in February of 2009 after the Pats beat the Rams in Super Bowl 53. And that was that 13-3 to defensive slugfest where the Patriots put on a masterpiece. Yeah, you know, so those are, you know, th- th- that's when it really, that's when it really hits you, what you've been a part of, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. My first one, though, I will say this, the first game I ever called in, in, in that setting was Super Bowl 49. I remember Super Bowl 49 because that one was a crazy ride because I remember the playoff game, you got the bye week and then you play Baltimore and Baltimore had two 14-point leads. And I'm like, phenomenal game. There, There's no way they're going to be able to pull this off because, I mean, I, I had even lost faith a little bit because I'm like, the Ravens have finally outpatriated the Patriots because they fi- they finally beat them basically at their own game. And then all of a sudden, next thing I know, I'm like, okay, what happened? And all of a sudden, yeah, they just turned it on. Phenomenal. And then it was like they get to the indie game and they just blow the doors off of them. Yeah, well, that was a you know that was a a wild ride, as you said. And in the Super Bowl, of course, the Seahawks are in position. Uh, to put the game away, they got a double-digit lead in the fourth quarter, and they get with the Legion of Boom, that great defense, and the Patriots come back and take the lead. And then the Seahawks are, you know, after this amazing catch, really a miraculous Jermaine Curse. They're yeah, there. I'm like, how did he do that? Yard line, and they throw an intercept. And Russell Wilson's intercepted by Malcolm Butler. And I still, I still remember the call of you 
because I think you were stunned for a second because when he dropped the throw, I think you were even stunned. Because when I heard the call, I I'm like, I, I don't think you, I don't, I don't know how you could not be stunned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't believe it because I'm like, he, what? What is he doing? He's got the best back in the league back behind him. All he has to do is hand it off, and they're gonna throw. And when you said he dropped it, I'm like, what is he doing? And then I'm thinking, how did that just happen? You and however many more millions I, I couldn't believe it because I, I literally was I mean Zoe was going out of his mind because I think you were trying to make it no, it was really an amazing thing and the Seahawks the Seahawks and their fans were too but it's been an incredible run. It's great to talk with you today and catch up yeah one last thing I noticed you do you do the TV games the pre, you and Zoe would switch over to TV for preseason how do you keep yourself mentally sharp from falling into that trap since you're basically known as the radio boys of the majors, but you slide over to do the four preseason games now on TV? Yeah, there's an adjustment when you go back to the radio booth because you're calling play-by-play play different. And, and our TV broadcasts themselves are structured differently than your typical TV broadcast. Ah, okay. I'm in conversation talking about position battles and big story uh, Debates with the Patriots. You know, what's the defense going to look like this year? You know, how are they? How how's you know loss of Sky or that guy going to affect the team? And all to have you know it's up a third and five, and you know, so you're not really calling it the way you would with straight analysis in a regular season setting. It's a decision the Patriots organization, the production company, make. But it's a great experience. I think you know you. You do have to adjust a little bit when the when the regular season starts. Just you know, remember to cross all the T's and dot all the S's. Be focused. Mostly, it's, excuse me, an energy thing. You have to uh, you know have, uh, that ability to go and, and and sustain your energy for for three hours, which really asking that much. So uh, after a few years of doing the TV and the radio, making that switch, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with it. This has been a blast. Hopefully we won't take long to catch up again. And it's going to be a new era for you with no more Brady, no more Gronk. You're going to have uh, maybe Jared Stidham or other as the starting QB. You've got still got Edelman, but I don't know how much longer you got that. And plus you got a whole bunch of new draft folks. And what was it like doing the vir- seeing the virtual draft this year with your radio coverage? Well, it was, it was, it was, it was in a lot of ways, I think better from, for my covering it on the radio, I, I actually what <coughs> I was able to do it from home. True, one, and I think there's an intimacy, and also it, re, it removed a lot of yeah, it's not necessary elements in draft coverage. I think you know, obviously, I wish obviously I wish they were under different it was under different circumstances. But when we know when when you're watching the draft during a regular year, for example, I would be at a draft party on Thursday night for the opening round. And would be then that draft party. It would be very difficult, really, to stay on top of a lot of the the storylines and who was going where and you know, left on the board, things of that nature, because you're so caught up in what you're doing in your role uh, in that draft party. Uh, but uh, when uh, you know when this year's draft occurred, I was home and, and, and monitoring those first round picks and the same following nights instead of being at Gillette Stadium all day to. Like the draft from the media workroom, you know, I was I was home on Saturday, and you know, just made it a lot easier for me to kind of spread out all my stuff, all my notes, and, and uh, 
we keep on top of it that way. And then the Sunday after the draft, we, we had a show like we always do. And I you know, room <laughs> off for the most part, we're broadcasting remotely now uh, you know, in this, in this, in this time of uh, social distancing and stay at home orders. I mean, we're in a much different situation here in Massachusetts than uh, much of the South has been, Tennessee in particular, for a good portion of uh, you know, this period we're dealing with pandemic. Yeah, and I hope, I hope you're still going to do the Bob Sosie Show podcast, hopefully. Hopefully that's still in well, the offering, or is well, that? Yeah, yeah, we're going to resume the, the, the station podcast uh, before too long. Uh, we, 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 we break during the draft coverage because we just have the draft shows, and, and that kind of takes of a regular podcast. But next week is the time uh, to, to get back at it. Well, my friend, this has been a blast. I mean, I've enjoyed, you know, listening to your work and – of course, when we get to the NFL season and when the season starts, I'll be looking forward to seeing how Jared Stidham or whoever else is going to, you know, be the opening, who's going to get the opening day start, and who's going to be new on this Patriots team, who's back and everything else. Because now you got to go from 90 to cut it down to 53 before the season starts, either on time or delayed. It's going to be interesting to see how the Patriots will look this year. Especially now, the yeah, they're going to look different in interesting season. Just to make an understatement, but it's a going to be a, you know it's going to be a fun experience I, when when football does resume. You know, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. I, I certainly hope, however, that you know the people that will ultimately make the decisions will make the decisions when it's safe and appropriate. Uh, the and uh, my, you know, again, my wife is a doctor, so that is a very important. Uh, you know, part of this for me too. Uh, you know, precedence, her job precedent in mind. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be uh, an exciting and new time for players and for the Patriots. And as you noted, it's a completely different era. It doesn't mean that necessarily that the Patriots are, are going to be a completely different uh, organization yep. uh, of expectations and realizations. You know, they they've taken this, but I I don't I don't anticipate them completely being uh being irrelevant uh, this year, and I think they'll be back in the too long. Could be. I mean, the the NFL does have a way of making things interesting. No, hey, it's been great chatting with you. No, thank you for the time. My thanks to the radio voice of the New England Patriots, Bob Sosi, for joining me on this edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast a proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. If you have suggestions or guests, you can email me or look for me on Facebook with the following address, luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb and on IG at lking.cardinalsfan85. And you can look up the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page and the Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page for more information about the podcast and the High Fidelity Digital Online Network. Join us again next time for another exciting edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network.
You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster Podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media or visit Luther King Broadcast Network. Network.com.